The Athletic. Hello, thanks so much for tuning in and joining us on this week's Zonal Marking Podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic. It's also brought to you by the usual gang, myself, Ali Maxwell, joined by Michael Cox, who is The Athletic's tactics writer, and Tom Warville, who covers all things data and data analysis around the beautiful game. We're going to get straight into our topic this week because, firstly, there's quite a lot to discuss, Michael, and also we want to do these three teams that we're talking about justice because we may not be talking about them for much longer. Yeah, uh, we're going to be talking about the relegated trio, who I think, looking at the league table, is pretty much done. We want to talk about a wide variety of teams, but maybe best to do them now rather than waiting a couple of weeks when we're going to be talking about the Champions League final or... European Championships or something like that. So yeah, we're talking about the sides that are destined to uh, go down. So this is, you have to say, something of a a pre-death post-mortem, certainly for Fulham and for West Bromwich Albion, who haven't been mathematically relegated yet. But in the instance of any doubt from the listener, here is the relegation situation, which Michael has decided is is done, that the show's over. Uh, all teams that I'll mention have four games still to play. Burnley and Newcastle are on 36. Then there's a dotted line. Then there's a nine-point gap to Fulham. One point below them, West Brom, therefore 10 points from safety. And Sheffield Wednesday down on 17 points, 19 points from safety and their relegation having been confirmed uh, a fair few weeks ago. We're also going to consider after we've given this post-mortem, whether these teams may do what their predecessors, Norwich and Watford, have done this season and bounce straight back. Of course, in the Championship, Norwich have been crowned champions, Watford promoted in second place, and Bournemouth, the third relegated side from last season, are heading into the playoffs with every chance. They'll probably be favourites for them alongside Brentford. So, Tom Warville, if you wouldn't mind, for, for those who have taken their eye off those three teams relegated last season, just talk me through the general themes of Norwich, Watford and Bournemouth seasons and how they approached bouncing back, which has to be the goal for the three that we'll talk about today. Yeah, with uh, with Norwich, they've largely trusted the process, I guess, which is something w- w- that has become synonymous with with the club, with Daniel Farker and with Stuart Webber at the helm as well. You know, same manager, a couple of more reliable starters this year in, in Grant Hanley and uh, Oliver Skips come in from loan from Spurs and done a really solid job in midfield as well. And then we've seen kind of Max Aarons, Tim Krul, Timo Puki all kind of keep the roles they played last year. You know, they've they've played a lot of minutes. They've contributed a lot uh, on the field and uh, field and in Aaron's and Pookie's case, a lot going forwards. And Norwich have got more out of, of Emi Buendia as well. He's kind of had this free reign in midfield when he of, of kind of where he picks the ball and, and seemingly what he chooses to do with it as well. And he's having a, a fantastic individual campaign. Well, which is, many people um, are wondering whether it might be the best individual campaign that we've seen since Adel Tarab's famous uh, 2011-12 season where he racked up 40 goal contributions. I think it was 21 goals and 19 assists in promotion uh, under Neil Warnock with QPR. That is how good Buendia's season has been. I think he's currently on perhaps 14 goals, 16 assists. So the question marks from last season in the Premier League were 
He doesn't have enough of a goal threat and he's a bit too hot-headed. And if I'm honest, one of them has definitely been answered with those goals, but he has also been sent off twice this season. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a it's a, a conversation for another time. But yeah, interesting that we've got both him and uh, Ivan Tony who've had you know stellar individual campaigns. I think Tony's now combined for 40 goals and assists uh, in total for this season. So that's, that's Dorich. Watford, we saw... A, a side who weren't great under Ivic, I think. I think maybe you know, underlying numbers looked okay, but they were just very stale, very slow, very stagnant on the ball. Uh, and that's completely changed with, with Cisco coming in. Ismail Asar was originally playing centre-forward under Ivic, and he's moved back out to his more familiar wide right position. And I think we spoke about him before, have, like not having a great campaign and thinking that he, you'd expect his numbers to bounce up a lot more um, at the Championship. That hadn't happened. Moved back to the right, and he's, he's been in a tear recently. Uh, I think he scored 10 goals uh, at wide this season and I mean he's having the best goal scoring season of his of his young career so far so that he's been really good for Watford and then lastly you know Bournemouth um, vastly improved in recent weeks when you look at their kind of rolling XG and they didn't really change the squad a ton after relegation in terms of bringing players in now Bournemouth lost Callum Wilson they lost Ryan Fraser they lost Nathan Ake um, Josh King Harry Wilson all gone and the only player who they've kind of Bought in, who's new, who's contributed a lot of minutes is Cameron Carter Vickers, who's at the back. So, a lot of kind of organic internal transfers that have kind of powered Bournemouth's uh, campaign this season, getting more out of Dan Juma, out of Lloyd Kelly, out of Dom Solanke, who were kind of all youngsters on the fringe in the Premier League last season, but this season they've, they've done far more. And um, yeah, they look like they're going pretty well at the moment. Although, I mean, a couple of couple of losses last two games out, but I think it was seven wins on the bounce before that under under Woodgate. So, yeah, definitely in the in the mix in the playoffs. So the blueprint for those three sides, I think you have to say, was helped, and it sounds like a weird word to say, but helped by the coronavirus pandemic and football in COVID last summer specifically. As you say, a very unusually low amount of squad churn when it came to losing key players, losing Premier League talents, essentially. And and that certainly, with you know each of those cases being unique in their own way, has been the bedrock for largely for those three teams' success in the Championship. So that will be the sort of backdrop for some of our discussion today. But let's talk about those three sides who we think will be relegated. We're pretty confident we'll be relegated. Michael, of course, we did a podcast series, two episodes back to back on how to stay up in the Premier League in your first season following promotion. And then, of course, the difficult second season uh, aspect to it for episode two. And in our how to stay up in your first season pod, you actually came up with Cox's law of survival, uh, also known as the 25-25-50 law. Just remind me of the details surrounding this and whether or not it rings true this season. Very pleased that you remember that, Ali. Yeah, uh, so basically it means you can afford to lose 50% of your games if you want to stay up. But you've got to make sure that of the other 50% that you don't lose, you win about half of them. So basically nine wins and 10 draws or 10 wins and nine draws will keep you up. As things stand, Fulham who are in 18th place, have lost 50% of their games, 17 from 34. The problem is that they haven't won 25%. They've only won five games so far. And they'd have to get that up to nine wins, really, to have any chance whatsoever of staying up. So, yeah, it does seem to be working pretty well this this uh, season. As things stand, Burnley and Newcastle, who are 16th and 17th, just above the relegation zone, they've basically nailed the 25-25-50 um, law in terms of the overall survival, you know, looking at it in terms of the end of the season, because as things stand, they're on uh, they're both on nine wins and nine draws, so one more avoidance of a defeat, and they'll probably be safe. Actually, Burnley play Fulham on the Monday, so there's a good chance that Burnley will seal their survival 
um, and Silk Fulham's relegation, uh, obviously on the same night. Now, Sheffield United, the first team we're going to look at here, they took a different approach, Michael. They they read about Cox's Law. They decided to trial their own, uh, which is the 15-5-80. That is uh, 80% of their matches ending in defeat, 15% in victory, that's five, uh, and just the two draws. Now, they didn't win... Michael, until match day 18, if you'll forgive the, the use of that phrase. Uh, but they did, in the end, or have done, got well above Derby's record low points total of 11 in a Premier League season on 17 with four games to go. But it is just 17 points from 34 games, 0.5 points per game. Do you think they've been as bad as that points tally suggests? It's funny you mentioned Derby, because I remember a couple of their players saying that they read an article on The Athletic about Derby's season and how bad it was and how the players were, you know, completely disillusioned. And they said, well, it's not like that here. So it's not going to be as bad as Derby season. So they, they stuck to that. I mean, they, the first few games of the season, they were they were losing consistently quite narrowly. And I thought they were quite unlucky in a couple of those games. So my initial reaction is that they've been slightly unfortunate. But then I looked at the stats and actually they're not very impressive at all. Uh, Tom is obviously the stats man and can probably explain more. Q Warville. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I was looking at the the kind of per game XG numbers, both for and against. And I mean, going back to sides since 2015-16, they've got the the fifth worst XG per game, so they're, you know barely creating any chances, and the seventh worst XG conceded per game as well. And combined, that's the kind of worst XG difference per game of any team in the last six seasons. So yeah, the the, the underlying numbers aren't are really not good and they really match up with um, with performances and with what we'd expect and I kind of looked at some of the teams around Sheffield United who've had similar numbers or worst expected goal difference numbers in that time and the list kind of speaks for itself so you've got Newcastle in 1920 who I think really were only really kept up by some stellar goalkeeping for Martin Dubravka I think any other season they're, they're you know likely to go down Sunderland 16-17 relegated Palace this season which again is an interesting one and I think that you throw into the mix the the huge squad rebuild that they're going to require in the summer, and that is a, a big recipe for potential recipe for disaster if, if Roy Hodgson is to leave. West Brom the season down, Villa in fifteen sixteen down, Huddersfield eighteen nineteen down, Norwich nineteen twenty down, Hull sixteen seventeen down, Stoke seventeen eighteen down, and Fulham in eighteen nineteen also relegated. So yeah, the uh, the numbers here are very telling that if you play the way that Sheffield United do more often than not, unless you get a bit lucky of the likes of Palace and Newcastle, you're going to get relegated and uh, and they have done. Now, uh, Michael, in their first season, of course, last year in the Premier League, they were sensational by any measure for a recently promoted side. And a lot of credit was given to Chris Wilder and his assistant, Alan Nil, specifically for their tactical setup and fairly specific tactical setup in that 3-5-2. We did a whole podcast on it last season. It's been referenced to death now. If the system itself was largely given credit for their success, how much can this season's failings be put down to the old classic? They've been found out. Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, I've seen that chat a lot, but I think as we've discussed a couple of times on here before, I'm not entirely convinced that it's like the old days where it, it takes a season to figure out a team. I think the level of opposition scouting now means that it, it happens within a you know space of weeks, maybe even on the you know after one game if you see that system teams have a plan for it. But maybe there is something about that. Maybe after you know having played played them twice last season, they are less unpredictable. But I think it's I mean there's a variety of things involved. I think you don't 
you don't drop off so much based upon just one thing. I mean, as I say, at the start of the season, I thought they were a little bit unlucky, but there was a game they lost 3-0 against Southampton in December uh, where they were just completely outplayed. And I thought from that point, there's, there's no chance of them staying up. I remember the changes they made that game were bringing in Billy Sharp and Phil Jagielka. And it just wasn't kind of what you want in terms of refreshing a side that did look a little bit fatigued and maybe a little bit mentally exhausted. I mean, Tom's explained that the expected goal difference isn't pretty, particularly in terms of their concessions. But it's worth pointing out they've underperformed their XG in an attacking sense significantly. They've got they've scored 18 goals from 30 XG. That's a collective failing. Rian Brewster, I think £23 million, zero goals, you have to say. Um, whether that is the cause or the symptom, that has been an example of really why it hasn't worked for them. I think we also have to mention injuries. I mean, they, they did beef up the squad a little bit, but when Jack O'Connor out for almost the whole season, they didn't know how to cope without him. Didn't I mean, I thought actually Ampadu could have been a good replacement, but he didn't really under didn't really work in that role. Robinson, not particularly good there. Ender Stevens has had a spell as the left-sided centre-back. And there was one game... Think against Leeds, where they had the two wing backs from last season, uh, Baldock and Stevens, as the outside centre back, and then Jagielka between them. And I just thought, well, that's yeah, you're playing the same system, but you've actually departed quite a lot in terms of the individuals that, that made it work. So, yeah, it's it's been a really difficult season for them, hasn't it? And and one last thing, I think of all the sides in the Premier League, maybe the, the lack of fans has has hampered them more than any, any anyone. I think just they had a great spirit and. It felt like Bramall Lane was going to be the new difficult place to go. Um, and obviously without fans, that situation is entirely different. Interesting. Uh, let's talk about any positives we can find. Uh, obviously, Chris Wilder no longer the manager. His departure pretty strongly linked to just unrest between himself uh, and the owners of the club and the, the vision of the club moving forward as they drop down into the championship. So currently Paul Heckingbottom uh, in an interim role being assisted by a couple of others, Alan Nil himself and, and Jason Tindall, but so much up in the air in terms of who will take them forward last uh, next season rather in the championship. Who do you think is, is their best player uh, this season? Who do you think could feasibly stick around in the Premier League somewhere else? I think for me, it's, it's probably Chris Basham. Now, he's not exactly a... Uh, a young player who's going to be around for many years but I just think if you look at the numbers that he puts up and we look at kind of numbers from Smarter Scout his ball progression figures of how well he, he carries and passes the ball upfield for a centre-back are really really solid and Smarter Scout also has some some algorithms for measuring the number of opportunities to defend and also the quality of a player's defending and, and how much they allow teams to kind of progress into their zone or their area and Basham just rates really highly by that as well so it, it just seems that he individually has had a good season when everyone else hasn't really um, so I think he, he's good uh, and he's someone who definitely will become in, in handy next season but I think after that if you look at the squad I mean in terms of sell on value slash there for a few more years I mean Aaron Ramsdale hasn't been amazing this season but he was still retained value from the, the investment from uh, the transfer last year from, from Bournemouth is another one and then I think they've got a few good or solid youngsters who they'll be able to, to play and get more minutes to do next season I think Jaden Bogle has looked really good in, in the few minutes he's had and there's a reason why some you know larger European clubs last season were scouting him so I think that he's one that will probably pay off in the, the longer term as well. I like uh, David McGoldrick a lot. I think his intelligence, his understanding of the system, he varies his position very well, uh, very effectively, very well. And he's got seven goals this season, which is a big improvement. Last year, he was probably the, I think in terms of XG, he was maybe the, the most inefficient finisher. You sneakily at the end of your question added on, might stick around in the Premier League. I think that might be beyond McGoldrick, to be fair, because he's 33 and 
you know, the sides likely to come up, I think, are they're, they're clubs that think in the long term, don't they? Which is probably explains partly why they probably will be coming back up. Well, certainly two of them, maybe three of them. So I'm not sure we'll see him again in the Premier League, but I must say I've really enjoyed watching him. And, in, you know, I've enjoyed watching Sheffield United. It's been obviously a disastrous season for them, but incredibly refreshing how well they did last year. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure they're going to bounce back, but I really enjoyed. I mean, I, I have really, really good memories of that. I was at the first game they, they played when they were um, up away at Bournemouth and the atmosphere amongst the supporters was just incredible and they got a one-all draw uh, and yeah very fond memories of that campaign very fond memories of, of last season it, the squad depth particularly Tom the chart that you've put together it, it's a real mixed bag this there are parts where I'm kind of grimacing but then there's a lot of names that if they stayed in championship terms anyway you can talk yourself into areas of the pitch looking and remaining fairly strong you know a front two of McBurney and Brewster uh, certainly as someone who follows the championship if I don't look at Premier League performances that looks strong to me and then there's people like Jack O'Connell who we've mentioned who suffered such a bad injury and hasn't featured at all this season and others like Fleck, Lundstrom and Norwood the central midfield players who you know based on their performances last season you could you could certainly see them being an appealing signing for a, a Premier League side but maybe have lost a bit of that uh, attraction uh, after drop off this season how do you think the squad's shaping up heading into the summer yeah you, you're right it's funny I probably have to kind of tweet the chart out so people can see it but if you go by transfer marks kind of categorization of the different positions uh, this is just very top heavy I mean Sheffield United have six strikers uh, three centre mids, two defensive mids, and then the back line. There's no like wingers or, or attacking midfielders in there. But I think having six strikers on the books is a lot. But obviously, with the way that the market is so depressed right now, you're not probably going to get a, a lot of money, and especially the ages of some of the strikers and the number of years they have left in their contracts. I think you'll you'll struggle to move on any for any real kind of money, really. So that's a, an interesting area of, of of concern, I guess, and one that um, Richard Sutcliffe are. Sheffield United writers written a piece on not so long ago on you know how does how do you turn six into into three I guess which is what most teams have six you know three reliable strikers in midfield I mean John Lundstrom like you said Ali had a great term uh, last season and, and now really hasn't been as good this year and and maybe I wondered if that a kind of lower level Premier League side would maybe pick him up and I could definitely see him at you know a, a Crystal Palace or that caliber of team just because he seems like a very Palace signing. And then at the back, I think the biggest issue is going to be at the back. I mean, you're going to lose Ethan Ambadu back to Chelsea, Phil Jagielka likely retiring, unlikely to sign a new year, a new deal, although that's just speculation on, on my part. On the, so that's on the right-hand side. Kian Bryan on the left, his contract expires this summer. So you're going from six centre-backs to just three, uh, which is a, a big issue, really. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of work to do with this squad to get it in a position to to bounce back even for kind of mid to upper table championship next year. So, um, yeah, you can see the direction that the owners of Sheffield United wanted to go in was to have a director of football so that they probably foresaw this issue arising and now it's uh, it's playing out in real time. Yeah, interesting point. They've, they've just been so built for the system. I hadn't really considered it in these terms, but you know, that's obviously affected them in terms of tactical, uh, tactical flexibility as well. They just haven't been able to deviate from that preferred system. So, yeah, that's a very interesting point. Yes, and interesting, I guess, to follow their manager or head coach recruitment this summer. I wonder whether they will prioritise someone who has a track record of playing a three-at-the-back system, of course. As you say, this squad now uh, very much lends itself to that. But plenty of question marks over the summer for Sheffield United. And I wonder if that will impact your answer to the big question. Do you think 
Tom, that Sheffield United are likely to bounce straight back up or at at this juncture, does it look like they have a bit too much to sort out? Yeah, I think a little bit too much to sort out in terms of you know personnel. They need a manager. They don't have an identity that the, the squad can fit into at the moment. So I'd be surprised if they can pull all of that together in one window or two windows ahead of next season. Michael? I agree. I agree with your sentiments that maybe McBurney and uh, Bruce would be a really good championship pairing, but not too much to be positive about that. Okay, let's move on to West Bromwich Albion. I think we have to split this season into pre-Allardyce slash January editions and post-Allardyce and January editions. Of course, we did a whole pod on Sam Aladici Allardyce when he arrived. And I think I'm right in saying, just to throw back to that, Tom, that West Bromwich Albion's underlying numbers before Big Sam's appointment were absolutely horrendous, right? Yeah, truly. I mean, again, looking back to that 2015-16 uh, season sample, they were the worst attacking side and the worst defensive side in the Premier League. And I think that was half a half an XG a game worse off than Sheffield United, who are the worst team we've seen uh, over that period of time. So I think, you know, if Sheffield United are bad, I think, you know, these are truly terrible, probably, you know, shifting the scales for what, what bad looks like in the Premier League uh, to start with. Now, let's be clear, Michael, Sam Allardyce walked into a side that had suffered a horrendous start to their league season. They only had three points after nine games. I remember you saying that you thought Allardyce increased their chances of survival. You weren't as bullish to say they will stay up now because of the predicament that they found themselves in. And while they've not achieved survival, do you think that making that change, bringing in Allardyce is justified with hindsight? Uh, Yeah, I think I said something like 15% to 35% 35% or something very, very astutely keeping it under 50% there, covering all my bases. But yeah, I mean, there's been a slight improvement, uh, just not enough. And obviously it's come too late as well. I mean, to reiterate what Tom said, there's this kind of feeling that Billich was slightly harshly sacked because it was after a draw with obviously the imminent champions, Manchester City. But Steve Madeley, our West Brom reporter, did a really good article on basically it was delayed. The sacking was basically just delayed because of COVID bubble reasons, they wouldn't have been able to get a new manager in. Um, so really, in effect, he was sacked after a 5-1 loss to Crystal Palace and 2-1 against Newcastle, which is kind of fair enough. Um, the only game they'd won before that was um, against Sheffield United. And even in that, they lost the XG 3.4 to 1.7. So they were really struggling. And I think under Allardyce, they, they gave themselves a fighting chance. Um, they eventually shored things up at the back, although again, that probably took a few weeks longer than, than we expected. I think maybe the, the more obvious improvement is going forward, actually. I think they've just looked more dangerous. Diagne coming up front, obviously a bit of an Allardyce, classic Allardyce centre-forward. Um, and now it feels like they've got a variety of tactical options. Hasn't been enough, hasn't been anywhere near enough. But I do think they are in better shape. They're a better side than they were in the first few weeks under Billage. It hasn't been anywhere near enough. But Tom, I'm interested to know, looking at the underlying numbers, whether... 38 games of this sort of performance level under Allardyce would have had them safe or at least safer <laughs> towards safe. Yeah, they're, so I mean, since Allardyce has come in, their XG difference per game is about minus 0.44, which uh, ranks roughly 96 out of 120 team kind of season combinations we've seen since 2015-16. So probably enough to be okay um, over the course of a season to survive probably quite unlucky if you're getting relegated with those numbers so lower mid-table really for Allardyce since he's uh, since he joined West Brom and Michael you, you spoke quite strongly about the misconceptions about Allardyce's 
tactics uh, on the special episode we did on Allardyce. How has he approached things tactically here? How has he tried to get West Brom out of this situation? Well, it's been a mixed bag. I mean, he's sometimes regarded as a long ball manager. I'm not sure that is true. He's been cautious. They've defended deep. They've been direct without being long ball, I'd say. They've they've looked for, for Robinson when he's been playing quite quickly over the top. That has been effective in a couple of games, notably against Chelsea. Diani has come in, but it wasn't really it wasn't really a long ball approach. Certainly they were getting in crosses. I remember that worked very well against Manchester United when he towered over um, Lindelof to score the opener. But yeah, there have been some more classic Allardyce situations. His first one was 3-2 over Wolves. That was quite telling. There were five goals in the game and none of them were from open play. They all came from set pieces. So that was uh, pretty classic Allardyce. But there are probably what I said in the podcast about him was that over the years he has look to get in talented players and he has looked to get them the ball in their favourite situations and I think that's happened with Pereira who the first few weeks of uh, of uh, the Premier League campaign under Billich was really struggling to influence games and I think the odd game in, in recent weeks obviously it's difficult to be consistent when you're playing in a cautious side but he's been much more involved and in a couple of games has played really well so again I, I think he's uh, He's done an all right job, certainly in terms of just getting players in situations they're comfortable in, which he always says is his main thing. I know it sounds a very obvious thing to say, but his his approach with with his best players is he gets them doing the things that they want to be doing, which you could make an argument is actually the opposite of, of what a lot of managers do. Every manager now wants their strikers to press and their defenders to play out. And Allardyce is very literally back to basics. And I think, yeah, it's kind of work. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. And... Talking of individual players, I mean, Matthias Pereira, you mentioned there, undeniably talented, to my eyes, their star man in promotion from the championship last season. But I, I also know that there have been some interesting additions in January, not just Dianya, who you mentioned, but Maitland-Niles to an extent, and Yakuslu as well, the midfield player. Uh, who do you think, Tom, has been West Brom's most impressive player this season? I think it's probably going to be Pereira, just because, I mean, he's been the most creative um, force on the side he's he's chipped in with goals um, he's not missed any penalties which I think is probably important as well uh, especially for a team like West Brom um, and he's doing it all while kind of not really seeing a lot of the ball I mean he's only getting 43 touches per 90 which for an attacking mid is is not a lot so I think that I'd be really intrigued to see if he were to move and, and play on a side where there's more possession he's probably unshackled a bit more whether he can actually increase his output even further so um, yeah I think Pereira for me definitely any other options, Michael? No, I think Pereira is the best player. Johnson's done well in goal, but it's one of those where he's had so many shots to save. It's a bit of a Russell Holt situation, if, you, if you're happy for me to go back 19 years to another West Brom relegation campaign. And there was a bit of a campaign, oh, Russell Holt should be playing for England this summer at the World Cup. And probably not. But um, yeah, Jokoslu, he looks a really good player. He's only on loan uh, from uh, Celta Vigo, isn't it? Um, and I can imagine him getting a decent move on the back of this season. Whether he'll stick at West Brom in the Championship, I, I would be unsure. Tell me what you've liked about your Koslu, because it, it can be tough changing division, changing team in the middle of a season, part of a, a side that hasn't picked up a lot of points. What's caught your eye? Just a bit of everything in, in his game, really. I think he's um, he's done well as a bit of a ball-winning midfielder. He's got a bit of, I guess, 
aggression about him, physical presence about him, but he's also a decent distributor of the ball. I think he's just the kind of older midfielder that a side like West Brom need. You know, they're obviously not a great side. They're not trying to play great football, but they have, since January, had a player who's just basically doing the doing the dirty work and has, has by and large, done it pretty well. Yeah, looking at Yukosley's numbers, I mean, he, he profiles very, very similarly to Declan Rice, which I think is an interesting comp as someone who has a little bit of everything. And if, you know... West Ham are heading towards the Euros, uh, or sorry, not the Euros, the, um, that would be a turn up for the books. They're going to be in Europe next season, and it just feels like Yukoslu is the sort of profile of player you can imagine could work for them in terms of kind of cheap option, someone who can take Rice's minutes so that there's not too much of a, a burden on him, and you're probably not going to see a massive change in uh, in the style of play that they have there, especially when Mark Noble's uh, you know, ageing and uh, probably can't do the things that they now require from, from Rice in midfield. So, yeah, um, I, I agree with Michael. It'd be interesting to see kind of what happens with Yukosley because he's had a, a pretty decent stint in the Premier League. A bit more information about all things West Brom, of course, with Steve Maidley covering the club so well on the Athletic site. I mean, just in the last few weeks, there's a piece on Yukosley and his future, Matthias Pereira and his future, and also a piece that went up today on Sam Allardyce and whether he will be leading them in the Championship next season. It, you can read Steve's writing and. Every single writer on The Athletic covers their team with such depth and quality. Uh, Theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking if you're not a subscriber but you'd like to be uh, and you can start your subscription today if you follow that link. It'll be £3.99 for the first six months of your annual subscription. In terms of the squad and how they head into the summer and towards the championship next season. Uh, how do you think they're looking, Tom? I guess starting up, up top, you've got Callum Robertson and Carlin Grant. Feels like a very serviceable front two for the championship. And I think Diagne's got a, an option on his loan as well, which, um, you know, Big Sam is to stay and likes him. I think it's probably a, a, a not an awful player to have in the chat with you as well. On the wings, I mean, a lot depends on if Pereira stays on the right. Matt Phillips and Robert Snodgrass... Uh, again, probably serviceable for a, a year in the champ or two years if they don't go up. But thinking longer term, there's not much there. Um, Grady Diangana not amazing in the Premier League this season, and it's funny to think back to the the uproar from West Ham and all the even the players about his sale to to West Brom, and then they've been far far better without him, and he's not really pulled up any trees at, at West Brom this season either. And then going back in, in midfield, remain Sawyer's and Jake Livermore, the only kind of two centre mids who are on. Uh, Westbrook permanently Maitland-Niles Yukoslu Gallagher going back to their their parent clubs um, so you know definitely need some bodies there and then uh, centre-back as well I mean uh, centre-back you've got no left centre-backs or naturally left-footed centre-backs there Sami Ajayi has been okay Carl Bartley's out of contract uh, Daro Shea uh, down the transfer market as a uh, centre-back I think he might be a full-back IRL and then left backs there's just none Kieran Gibbs is off to into Miami in the summer um, Colin Townsend out of contract Carl Edwards as well I think more of a left mid but again out of contract so a lot to a lot of work to do at the back and then in terms of in goal it depends if you if you're West Brom do you cash in on Sam Johnson now who is uh, you know an England international or at least or at least has been been called up to the squad you know David Button probably not a perfect long-term replacement and Johnson's only on a one-year contract. So, again, like Sheffield United, there's a, a lot to do this summer. And, um, yeah, again, I'm not entirely sure they'll fully be able to, to yo-yo straight back to the Premier League. I mean, the good thing is, you know, if there's any manager who doesn't really worry about what foot his centre-back prefers, Sam Allardyce, I mean, as long as you've got a head, you're sorted. Do you not think he's read Tom Wolver's piece about passing angles for left-footed centre-backs and why that is uh, optimal uh, rather than suboptimal if you have two right-footed centre-backs? Probably not, probably not. But, I mean, is Allardyce 
the sticking point here. You know, if I'm putting you on the spot and asking if you think they'll bounce back up next season, how much is the next question, well, will Sam Allardyce be there? Well, I mean, Steve Madeley has is, is framed this in quite an interesting way, saying that if Allardyce is still there for next season, it's a good sign. Not just because he'll be there, but because he'll only be there if the board have said, look, we've got the intention and we're giving you the budget to get straight back up. So that's uh, that's why we have club reporters. They make good points like that. <laughs> but I mean, for you, that would be obviously seen as a positive thing. You um, you definitely worship. No, you don't worship, but you certainly you certainly <laughs> uh, you have prayed at the altar of Allardyce. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's got experience of doing it before, both with Bolton, who he brought up from a you know a lesser point, uh, and West Ham as well, who bounced back first time of asking when he was in charge. So yeah, he's. He does seem to have slightly got some of the fans on board as well, which um, you know was a bit of an issue with um, supposedly having loyalties for Wolves in uh, in a former life. But uh, yeah, I, th- I think he's. I think he will stay, and I think if he does stay, I'll probably bring him back up. Interesting, Fulham to finish us off, Michael. What is the story of Fulham's season? Because I have to say. I have found it very, very hard to have a strong steer on them at at various different points of this campaign. It's been like trying to catch an eel with your bare hands, trying to <laughs> trying to work out Fulham. So give me a hand here. Give me a net. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, my theory is that they didn't have enough time to prepare for the league. Uh, they won promotion in the playoff final on the 4th of August. Uh, on the 12th of September, so basically five weeks later, they started the Premier League. For obvious reasons, never before has a side had such little time to prepare for the Premier League. And they only got one point from their first six games, which was against Sheffield United, as seems to be becoming, uh, seems to be becoming a theme in this pod. If, if any bad side got a point, it was against Sheffield United. If you do a league table taking away those first six games and make a league table from the start of November, Fulham are only one point off survival. And maybe most interestingly, they're only one point off Southampton who were top of the league at the start of November. So can you use this as an excuse? I don't know. It's been exceptional circumstances for everyone. But I think it's been a mighty tough year for a playoff winner to stay up. And when you look at the the players they brought in after the start of the season, um, Adrabayo, Lukman, Anderson in particular, I think has been exceptional. And Loftus-Cheek, who's obviously just got Premier League quality. Had they had them for the whole season, and, and for pre-season as well, you know, it's not just about coming in two days before your first game. Had they had their full squad for the duration of the season, I think they would have stayed up. So I just think turning a side who came up from the playoffs into someone who can survive in the Premier League in this year has been very difficult. And Parker's done a, I think has come off quite well. His his reputation is, is uh, I think, has been strengthened on, on the basis of this season, even though it's going to end in relegation. Tom, uh, Michael mentioned there, terrible start to the season I mean as we record today they've only picked up one point from their last six games as well having picked up one point from their first six in between those two chunks there was a weird run of 15 games where Fulham only lost three of 15 but they only won two and drew 10 of 15 an unusual run for any team to have and I'm always wanting to know when there's a a lengthy run of draws are the majority of those draws that could and should have been wins or are they draws that are being scraped? Do you know what I mean? You know, what that, that feels like a very significant portion of the season to look back on, especially if we're talking about Cox's law of 25, 25, 50. 
talk me through that run of form and, and, and why there were so many draws in it. Yeah, I think any period of time when you have just that volume of draws over a, a relatively small number of games, I think you've you've got to point it down to bad luck. I mean, football obviously is a low-scoring low sport. For there to be that many, though, it just feels odd. And then you look at the numbers and there are some tight games, but also some tight games where the, the result of a draw obviously just makes no sense. I think back to the 1-1 the against Spurs. I mean, uh, Fulham had 0.9 XG, Spurs had 2.3. So you think on the day they were kind of handily out, out XGs. I remember watching that game and thinking Fulham are one of the teams to watch at the moment. They played... Yeah. electrifying stuff at times yeah absolutely I think I think that's one of those if we go on a tangent slightly is, is where maybe a couple of big Spurs chances completely changes the your whole perspective on Fulham getting into the final third attacking the box a lot maybe not shooting uh, and and that obviously not showing up in the box score but that being something that we value when we, we watch games a lot and then alternatively I mean they, they dropped points against Palace it was 0-0 I think the XG for Fulham was, was around 1 the XG for Palace was around 0.1 so again shows games where they maybe should have got more than more than just a single point and they've kind of uh, yeah, the, the the chance they had haven't really fallen their way, or they haven't you know failed to to test the keeper, or actually you know eventually end up in the back of the net. So I think that it's just a weird run really. But if you look at their their rolling XG chart, I mean Fulham games this season are just so tight, and I think that it can happen if you, if you have such low volume of attacking for both sides in the game, you're probably more prone to to having draws potentially. So the margins are, are so thin on that. That's probably why we've had it. But if you look in terms of expected points uh, or expected goal difference. Um, both of those measures have them pinned around 15th in the league this season so that feels far more apt and far more what you'd expect given what we've seen for Fulham which at times they've played some like you're saying that Spurs game they've played some really nice stuff it just hasn't always been borne out uh, in, uh, on the pitch I remember when we did this podcast about how to stay up in your first season I wanted to know the realities of if you had to focus on being a good defensive team or being a good attacking team, understanding that it's difficult to be both if you've just come up from the championship, which one was was better? Which one was more preferable? And and I think, as is often the case, the answer was, well, both can have good outcomes. Michael, you don't have to look too far with Fulham to see both the issue and what's been quite impressive. Um, I mean, eight teams in the league have conceded more goals than them. Uh, defensively, they've been... Pretty good, but just 25 goals in 34 games. That ain't going to get it done. Yeah, I mean, a stark contrast from their previous survival effort when their defensive record was absolutely disastrous. They brought in uh, almost an entirely new defence in a way. Like I said, I think Anderson's been a brilliant signing. He's only on loan from Lyon. I think he could play for any club, really, in the Premier League. Maybe not the top two or three sides, but I think he's really good. He's a really good organiser. They've obviously got a very good goalkeeper as well. In Ariola, I mean, one league earner is the regular PSG keeper. Three years ago, he's a World Cup winner. Uh, I think he was third choice keeper for France, but uh, still has the medal. And their tactical flexibility as well. well I've been, that's what I've been impressed by about Parker. He was, I wasn't sure about his level of tactical acumen, but they've been very flexible. I mean, they've shifted between a back four and a back five in an unusual way, often with decoded over reads, dropping from right, right midfield or right wing back into becoming a wing back. That's worked really well. And yeah, you can't blame the manager for the lack of goals. I was looking at the stats and across the 98 teams in Europe's major five leagues, there's only one other side that has underperformed their XG by more. And uh, regular listeners of this podcast won't be surprised to know that is Brighton and Hove Albion. <laughs> um, but we all know it about Brighton. I mean, it's such a big thing about Brighton in terms of them not scoring enough. And we haven't said it as much about Fulham and maybe we should have because uh, they have created the chances and there's been a lot of games they've lost. As you know, there's been a lot of games where they've drawn where they, uh, they 
probably should have won. And uh, and that's why I think Parker's come off quite well from this season. A- anything, Tom, on the issues in the opposition box, finishing chances? Yeah, I think what's, what's interesting with Fulham is just how kind of nearly evenly the chance has been spread out and, and kind of distributed amongst the squad. Um, I mean, you look at Bobby Reed's 4.6 XG, Adam Ola-Lukman, 4.3 XG, Ivan Cavaliero, 4.2 XG, and Mitro's got 4.9 XG, and there's a couple of players after that. And that, to me, says there's not like a focal attacker or someone who's getting the chances on the team. Now, I don't think that you have to have it one way or another, but it, it's just an interesting quirk that... Um, Parker's obviously rotated a lot, but maybe that's at the detriment of, of having a clinical or main striker in the side. Um, but like Michael says, you know, they've, they've underperformed there actually quite a lot. I think it's only Reed and Lookman who are there or thereabouts. And the rest you've got, I mean, Maja, just two goals from 3.9 XG and Mitro, two from 4.9. So um, another day, another season, those guys are getting, they're getting bang on. They're getting more than than what you expect, perhaps. And that's just, just variance. And I think that, again, it goes to show that they've been unlucky more than bad at times this season I still think the Mitro conundrum which was the same even in promotion last season is still fascinating to me you know he's still got three more years on his contract they spent a lot of money on him he has been a star for Fulham there's no doubt about that and dare I say it without a couple of quite frustrating small injuries he's picked up this season maybe they would have had more of a a finisher in the box to, to get them more in line with the amount of chances they've created and yet and this is just my personal opinion, watching them at their best this season in that run, they were so fluid, so quick and so skillful going forward, specifically in transition. You could see absolutely how they could hurt teams, you know, more sustainably. And Mitro can't be a part of that system. He, he for all his skills, he is very, very slow and very cumbersome and, and will not contribute to a counter-attacking team. So I, I just find that really interesting to know whether Parker will think, actually, our best spell this season was a system that I can replicate in the championship without Mitro, or whether it will be, hold on, we've got a star player, we've locked him down for a few years, he's settled here and happy, let's try and get the best out of him. It's the same question as 12 months ago for me. I, I completely agree, and as you were saying that, Ali, peace sprung to mind that Michael did uh, towards the end of last season on I think it was Mitrovic versus Watkins and very much outlined that a lot of the stuff that Watkins would do would be the kind of the off ball running the you know running with the ball and very much Mitrovic is just you know man in box to aim crosses at and I think that's what Fulham notably did at the start of the season and it you know they weren't creating a lot of chances they were crying across a lot they got rid of that strategy and, and I think you know things turned around afterwards so um, yeah Michael I mean I, I think he should go but I think he should go to one of the best teams in the league. I think he would be a great plan B. I mean, he can be, you know, a Giroud figure. A Llorente. Or Cavani figure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you do need players like that. And the problem for, if you're Tottenham trying to get a player who can be a plan B to Harry Kane, the problem is, that who do you bring him? Because you don't want to spend 40, 50 million on a really good number nine, who then, you know, you have to convince him to sit on the bench. But if you're saying to a player, look, you've, you've been used to playing in the championship or you've used to being in a relegation fight, you can you can play in the Champions League here. I just think that ticks all the boxes. I think he is really good at what he does. It's just what he does, as you say, is is pretty limited and, and probably not good enough to be a, a regular. That's fascinating. And, and I must say, it's rare that I comment on the character and personality of a player because I think it's very difficult for us to have a true handle on that. Um, but my understanding of Mitrovic having followed him in the Championship and now in the Premier League for a good few years is that I suspect that would be the sort of role 
in which he'd absolutely thrive. Like this is a guy who has 41 goals in 64 games for Serbia. I think he's the, the nation's record ever international goal scorer, consistently steps up in big games for his country. And my feeling is that his personality would absolutely lend himself to that sort of role. And you could see him like not accepting it and trying desperately to become the main number nine and thinking that he should be the main number nine, which, you know, might cause a, a, a ruckus in the training, uh, in the dressing room, but I think is, as you say, exactly what you like. So there's a, there's a zonal marking campaign. Get Mitro to a top six club. I'm all for that. Mitro to Arsenal. I'm sure him and Lacazette could, uh, could share the spoils up front. Definitely. <laughs> Tom, how do you think Fulham's squad looks ahead of next season? I've got you on that previous podcast talking about concern for clubs that live window to window just in general that wasn't specific to Fulham but that does feel quite relevant here looking at their squad depth uh, and the amount of loanees that they have the thing with Fulham that I mean it's happened in 2018-19 what happened this season is that they go up they kind of completely shed their their championship skin and then when they get relegated they just kind of go back to it and they go back to to the Tim Reams to the Mitrovic's to the Joe Bryan's to the Tom Kearney's and those are all guys who are I think uh, apart from Ream who are still very much under contract for the next couple of seasons so um, they were all I think they were the top five players in terms of minutes played in 1920 and this season they've all played less than half the minutes available so I think we for them there is a lot to do because like you say Ali there's a lot of lone players and I think that yeah, four or five of their top players this season are, are loanees, apart from Tosin. Um, but elsewhere, I mean, again, just Mitchell up front, and now he's going to be joining Arsenal. I think they're going to have to, you know, find maybe find someone else because Josh Madge has been okay. He's on loan again, as well. On, yeah, exactly on loan. And I'm not sure there's a, an obligation or an option in there at all. I, I spoke to, just quickly. I spoke to Sammy James, uh, who runs the Fulhamish podcast, this morning. I asked him about these seven loanees, as you say. Four of their most five used players in the Premier League this season are on loan. Seven of, of 16, if you stretch it out a bit. And as, as far as Sammy knows, in terms of any obligations to buy and any expectation they will be there next season, it's pretty slim pickings. I think only one of them um, there is, I think it's Lamina, there was potentially an obligation to buy, but but not if they were relegated. So I, I think the expectation is that zero of the seven will be playing for Fulham in the Championship next season. Yeah, I think the Lamina one's interesting because he's the one that I imagine teams mid-table are sniffing round at. I think he's got a £7 million option at the end of his contract, which is in the final year at Southampton, perhaps. The biggest miss on that is, of course, when you only sign players on loan deals, you can't really uh, capitalise on any of the, the kind of the the gains in value of them over the course of the season and you know Anderson is someone that had you bought you could probably flip on for for a fair amount more but just quickly going back to the to the squad I mean yeah you're going to lose the low knees I think at the back they're largely set I mean Robinson and Brian on the left and uh, Tete and Adore on the right is is good enough for the championship Tosin at right centre back is someone that you could probably cash in on I mean, again, depressed COVID market might struggle, but he was, I mean, for £2 million, something like that, it's a very shrewd signing. Uh, and at the back, I mean, Rodak <laughs> barely kicked a ball or, or saved a ball in his case this season and will just slot in as number one again if Ariola isn't, isn't extended. So not a, a ton to do here. It's You've just got the guys who are still sat in the changing room from last season now ready to get their starting places back, really. And Michael, what do you think should be public opinion of Scott Parker as a young manager because he's had such an unusual start to his managerial career, stepping in as caretaker in a relegation that was obviously nothing to do with him, winning promotion through the playoffs in a league where they had a huge talent advantage and a financial advantage as well. That was 
job done, not job very well done, you wouldn't say. Uh, and now a relegation in which it feels like he's getting quite a lot of credit. Yeah, I'm going to borrow an opinion from your psychic George Ellick and say that he's, he's, he's done a better job taking Fulham down than he has taking him up. Um, he was really unconvincing, I thought, last year, their promotion campaign. But yeah, this season he has. He's done a lot of very impressive things. And it seems like his reputation is very good in the game. I know that there were a couple of clubs of a similar stature who changed managers uh, during this season who were kind of hoping that Fulham might get a bit impatient and get rid of Parker because they were interested in bringing him in. So I think he'll stay there. Clearly, he's got a good relationship with... Uh, it seems like he's got a good relationship with the squad. Obviously, he used to be a player there. I think the fans are very much behind him. Obviously, haven't been uh, into any games for quite a while. But yeah, I've been impressed by him. And um, so he's been very popular. Uh, he's been very popular with journalists and writers as well, hasn't he? Uh, famously winning football writers player of the season for the Premier League in a year where they suffered relegation. So maybe this is his thing. Maybe he just gets relegated and always looks very good while getting relegated. Maybe there's a theme to that. But no, I'm pleased for him. He seems like a he seems like a good guy, doesn't he? And, and I did always like him as a player, I must say. I think he was uh, he was quite underrated for long spells of his career. So I'm quite pleased for him. Positive signs for you, Tom? Fulham heading into next season? Yeah, I think, I think Parker's... I think Park is great, really. Um, tactically diverse this year, and maybe not always got it right, but shows an aptitude to risk, which is probably probably good. And I mean, the more games you get under your belt, I think we've spoken about on this pod before. The, the kind of tactical nature of football is uh, you're just trying to problem solve, right? The more problems you face, the, the better you'll get at solving them. So I think for him, that's a, a, a very much a good sign. Um, but yeah, on the softer side, you know, gel together a very young new set of players in a very short period of time to become the 15th best team in the league. Like, I think that's excellent, really. And the, the sort of progress you hope for for any young English manager. And he's only, like I said, going to improve with, with more games. Okay, so out of the three... Most likely, um, Michael, I know you like to put this in percentage terms. You don't like to be definitive with your opinions. Most likely of the three to bounce straight back and be a part of the Premier League in 2022-23. I'm going to go for West Brom despite their lack of a left-footed defender because I rate Allardyce and I think there's <laughs> there's a few players around who, um, you know, got them up and uh, will do so again. You just think bish, bash, bosh, Sam Allardyce takes him up again as he's done before. Yeah, and I, I wonder... I mean, this this is a more general point related to all these sides, but you know, looking at what's happened, there's like you said, there's a reason why there's two teams coming back, maybe a third, and the financial problems are going to be the same, aren't they? We've had we've had a you know, we've had a whole season without fans, so I, I just think I just think West Brom have got the they've got the infrastructure, and they have got some of the players, and they've probably got the manager, so I I would fancy them to come back up, and I hope they do because I really love the Hawthorns. And I wasn't able to go there all year, so I hope to visit again soon. Tom, who are you picking? I think it's got to be Fulham, uh, and that's mainly because they have enough of a, a process in place in the background to uh, to be preparing to fill the gaps that are going to open up in the squad um, once the window opens. I mean, it's been written about um, quite a lot now. They have this kind of two-boxes approach, which takes into account data and scouting and as long as the two marry up then you know the player can be can be given the green light now that doesn't always bring in the best players I think we've seen um, you know the likes of uh, I don't want to name names there was a Fulham season ticket holder at one point but um, there have been some very uh, I think Syriac is one of my favourite signings who somehow has made his way through Syriac as we used to call him yeah no I just think that Fulham have got enough of, of that in place the squad's decent if they keep Parker then yeah they've got a shout but if Parker is to 
to leave and maybe he's poached by Spurs or goes elsewhere, then I think I probably agree with with Michael West Brom and especially if they keep Allardyce of um, you know they've probably got the, his magic formula there to to get back up again in twenty two twenty three. The two box approach to recruitment for Fulham, but they only focused on one box on the pitch this season. Very very poor uh, in the attacking box, and that's what's ultimately done for them. Uh, thank you very much, guys, for your time this week. Thanks for talking me through West Brom and Jalby and Fulham and Sheffield United. Uh, again, two of those teams not mathematically relegated, but Michael decided that they certainly will be. So we've uh, we, we've we've said goodbye to them. The pre-death, post-mortem, uh, and thankfully. For any of their fans who are listening, there are a number of very good podcasts that cover the championship, so you won't exactly lose any depth of coverage or quality of it uh, in podcasting form. I can think of a few off the top of my head. Feel free to get in touch if you're uh, not sure what they are. I'm on Twitter at Ali Maxwell underscore. But from now until the end of the season, we'll be tackling some end of season type content of our own on the Zonal Marking podcast. And we've got big plans for Euro 2020 being played in summer 2021 as well. So stick with us. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast feed for all future episodes. Make sure you're subscribed to The Athletic as well so you can read every word that Michael Cox and Tom Warville write. Theathletic.com forward slash Zonal Marking, a good place to go if you want to get signed up today. But make sure you join us again next week on the Zonal Marking podcast. The Athletic.